Have you been thinking about how we can change the whole primary care system? Yeah, me too. Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah, a medical anthropologist and team member in the Innovation Support Unit in the Department of Family Practice at the University of British Columbia. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor and also a team member in the Innovation Support Unit. Sarah, we've intentionally focused on the tangible takeaways in this season of Team Up, even though we started talking about the system's approach to resilience. Morgan, that, that's totally true. We you know, made this decision to really bring small changes that you, our audiences, can act on or be inspired by in the day-to-day, thinking that the system's lens was super important and we needed those tangible actions to take forward. Yeah, and our other work is working with teams thinking about provincial change, like the Provincial British Columbia Team-Based Care Advisory Committee. And just this week, at the advisory core group, we were discussing some of the provincial supports that already exist and some that really need to be strengthened to help with the current challenges. So in this episode, which is going to be our last episode in the season of Team Up, we're going to zoom out and talk system. We're going to think about some of those larger changes that might need to be made and thinking about while we're in this increasing state of change, why resilience is important for the system. The purpose of the healthcare system is changing and has changed, and it is not the way it was when we designed it first in the 60s. Our roles are changing. Burnout is out of hand. And all of you know that a workforce crisis is not looming. It is here. We we are looking at a shortage of 20%. And ladies and gentlemen, we're not dealing with a pandemic, but with a syndemic. That was Johnny Van Aird, the Executive Medical Director of the Canadian Society of Physician Leaders, who participated in a team-up webinar focused on health systems leadership and lessons learned in COVID that you might remember from earlier this year. And Sarah, Johnny's spot on, I think. There are long-term changes in healthcare that have been pressuring the primary care system for years. We've all been focused on the pandemic and, and the recent crises, but they're built on top of something else. And I think all of these pressures are impacting us today. It's all coming to a head. The kind of long-term changes that we've seen in primary care have really influenced primary care culture. Sarah, how do you mean by that? So before the pandemic, the system was already stressed, right? This idea of doctor shortages, challenges in access to care, long wait times, complicated referral processes. You know, these were things that we heard about a lot. Also, I think the idea that people, particularly those who are often more marginalized, might be falling through the cracks of our healthcare system, this really isn't new. And for a long time, people have been talking about the need for new models of care where providers are supported by teams, where people have the flexibility to enjoy work and bring more balance into their lives. Right. The culture was already there of doing too much and feeling a bit frustrated. And now it's gotten acutely worse uh, with the recent stress. Right, and this idea of like the doctor who does everything, who's super busy, and the doctor being the center of healthcare provision for primary care, you know, that, that idea was shifting. You know, people were seeing more in kind of nurse practitioner circles. There was policy changes that were happening to expand scope of practices in BC for other providers. And slowly, these messages of culture shift were also getting through to the public. People wanted access to different kinds of care as kind of their first point of contact. And yet I think some primary care providers, family doctors, hold on to that old vision. There's something nostalgic about that, and it is hard to maintain. Well, and, and culture's not easy to change, right? Culture mm-hmm. shift takes a lot of, I think, concerted effort 
and time. And it needs a certain mass of people sharing these common perceptions before things are going to change. But it feels like we're getting closer to that place. It's a lot to unpack, and I don't propose we unpack it all today. Instead, really thinking about focusing on three system-level ideas to help with resilience, and bring, we'll bring culture back in later into all of our systems planning uh, discussions. So today we're going to be, as usual, concrete. We're going to talk about three things. First, creating capacity at the community level for direct care, thinking about ways the system can support reducing the non-care work for care providers and care teams. And then lastly, I think really thinking about how we engage in capacity building planning for primary care. So the first idea that we wanted to talk about is creating more capacity for primary care, more clinical capacity. What do you think we can do to do that? I mean, hiring in more primary care providers, family doctors and nurse practitioners. Uh, we're coming up to July 1, where we've got new grads from across Canada that are graduating. It's a good time to think about who's going to be available, who haven't settled into a, a practice or might be available for locuming. The other is to think about recruiting back family doctors and NPs from outside of primary care back into longitudinal primary care. And I think part of this, Morgan, is really thinking about hiring and promoting teams and team-based care specifically. And a lot of these new grads, we know that they want to work in teams. We, we know that you know people are looking for these kind of opportunities. Currently, there's, there's opportunities through primary care networks, but this also means really investing in and spending the time in what's needed to develop teams and new teams as they emerge. That, I think, is a really key piece in building kind of successful teams. And Sarah, that building the team builds some clinical capacity. It takes effort, though, to build the team to build that capacity. And so there's that balance. It's not just adding another practice, but it's working in a new way in existing practices. Well, and I think... Everyone who listens now knows that I somehow relate everything back to team mapping. But, you know, really doing the concerted work around scope of practice, around getting team members to work to full scope of practice. And, you know, maybe it means thinking about changing some professional scope of practice to really make those teams work efficiently. I also think the idea of, you know, if, if there's a piece in your team that you realize is missing, think about new roles that might be added into the mix that could really enhance team function. Absolutely. And I think there are a couple of targeted system things that we can do too. Like, I mean, let's use the pandemic for a second as an example, the whole idea of an immunization clinic, running that for a day, getting a whole bunch of things caught up. You can do that for not immunizations. And with the health authority and the, and the primary care networks, I think it's possible for the system to support primary care catching up diabetes care, for example, or other chronic diseases, preventive health and run these sort of blitz clinics where staff can come in and people know they're just coming in for their diabetes care. It's a focus visit, but you can see more people with a temporary team. And you're sort of teaming up together, running that for a day, and then getting back to regular practice. But you've had help to catch up without this large commitment for a team permanently. Other things that we've talked about for years in primary care, group visits, build capacity, of course. If there's some ongoing work that patients and peers can do, and you can help foster and support that. That's a great way to build capacity. So that's thinking about the patient as, as team members. And then more recently, the virtual visits can be a way to have shorter connections and therefore building a little bit of capacity within primary care. So promoting those. Well, and, and what I really like about this idea is some of these ideas are, are very small changes, right? But also there's some bigger changes around, around new roles. So I think there's lots of things that we can do right now to think about where might duplication be happening? Where can things be streamlined? And how can we really build that capacity? 
and then the system that needs to support those things. We made changes that are an improvement. Telehealth was a good example where the system didn't really support it the same way it does now. Group visits, initially, same thing. They weren't really supported, and they are better supported now. Well, and I think one of the things that we've been hearing a, a lot about that's a really kind of common friction that we want to talk about as our second idea is reducing non-care work. There's, there's just too much admin yeah. work and paperwork. If I could count the number of times we've heard providers over the last year when, when asked, what's one thing that could change that would really help? There's a really strong motivation right now to recognize and acknowledge the effort that goes into the admin side of care yeah. provision for providers right now. And it, it just, it needs to change. It's not sustainable. Sarah, I, sometimes I, I count and I estimate it in terms of number of visits per day that I lose. Having to add in this piece of work, that's taking two visits away every single day. And where we can cut that back, we instantly gain capacity. And I think we can we can find those points. It also is less rewarding for providers to do what's felt as unnecessary or redundant paperwork. And it's more rewarding to provide the direct care. So it's a win-win, isn't it? Well, yeah. And one of the things that we've seen some providers do really successfully is this idea of delegating paperwork across a team. Even temporarily, if there's another team member who can take on filling out specific forms or, you know, hiring in a scribe or an additional role to do the note taking and the the updating that needs to happen in the back end of, of care visits. I mean, again, I'm going to pull it to the system level. If there's a way to support that even temporarily, a, a scribe bonus, if you will, for a month to just get that backlog out of the way, that would be a huge sustainability win. Ideally, it's cutting down the amount of paperwork overall across the system at a, at a systemic level. But in the short term, getting the system to help you get people to do scribing and such, that's going to be really helpful. And another, I think, important idea here is around reducing meetings or making meetings more effective. Really thinking about what you're calling people together for and, again, that, that use of time. Part of this, I think, is also related to streamlining communication. So that might mean reducing the number of channels you have or reducing volume, making the decision to not email things and, and use more direct lines of communication with, with team members. Anything that can be done to reduce that non-care work is just so valuable. And, and then there's also reducing paperwork. Because <laughs> we haven't heard that one yet. Because that one would help, I think, if we cut down the amount of paperwork I had to do. Another piece, actually, and, and this is sort of related, is helping the population understand the role of primary care. That, I think, is something that I've realized is when you say primary care to, you know, your average person, even my mom, who knows a lot about the work that I'm doing, doesn't have that, that easy go-to definition of what is primary care in your head. You know, it's the first point of contact for care in a community. And not only that, but what does this transition to team-based care mean? What are those expectations? Anything that can be done to, I think, get those communications out to the public to help them understand not just what the pressures are on the system. There's a lot of communication out there about, about that. But what the changes are that people are trying to make in primary care transformation more broadly. And how I, as a patient, then can adapt so that I'm not putting inappropriate pressure on, on the system, right? Which person should I see for particular follow-up? That sort of thing. I think those are really important. Also kind of related to that, team is a challenge. It's a lot of work to change. Streamlining the team development for those who are engaged in that kind of change right now, I think it'd be really important too. Like really understanding, like here's kind of the package, knowing what the steps are, making it really clear. So you're not making things up as you go along as a provider. You're kind of stepping into something and the supports are clear and the process is clear. Yeah, I think that's so important. 
Oh, and I have one more idea to loop back to around communication with the public. Right now, I think we're hearing so much about the doctor shortage in the media. If anything that we can do to change that narrative to be more focused on primary care rather than doctor shortage. So instead of what can we do to solve the doctor shortage problem, what, what can we do to solve the primary care access problems? And I think that small change in language yeah. from doctor to team would make a big difference. Yeah, that can make a very big difference. You know, I think our third big idea is that the system needs to work to support building capacity. We know that change, it's not just a, oh, here's a policy, here's some funding. Mm -hmm. There's active support for implementing and changing. And that's so, so important. And there are great coaching resources that are set up and working in our primary care system to work with primary care providers on team function, looking at efficiency, all of these resources that do exist. But really, I think acknowledging that that support is needed at the system level to facilitate any kind of change that's going to move forward. And that support is growing. What we're seeing is that capacity for coaching at the elbow around system change, like practice change, it's maturing in BC. We're getting more people. Uh, we're getting different skill sets in that group now, too, that are really looking at team support, not just quality improvement within a doctor's office, but a primary care clinic or community health center or UPCC. So it's getting more mature and more robust, and that's really helpful. Well, and thinking about both the fact of this active support and how it's being provided, we're also seeing a lot more kind of co-design of, kind of local and applied relevant improvements across those areas. That's what having active support and really engaged coaching can do is, is build out those local solutions. In that also is here's who needs to be at the table as part yeah. of those co-design processes. And that's also, I think, a, a space of opportunity right now. We're seeing these networks build out and the supporting resources exist, become more robust. They're also able to engage a wider group of participants in those opportunities. Yeah, and at the right time, because everybody's tapped out. Don't bring a whole big group together for every single meeting because you won't get anything done, but being nice and targeted and then having that overall process across the system to say, we're going to go from A to B and B is going to be you know, a big improvement but we don't need you for everything. I think that's an important uh, component of that. Because I think if you want to do this big change and we overtap people just for the meetings, we're going to lose people. And we don't want to lose them at the wrong time. We want to keep them engaged at the right moments. So that's huge. And that's, I think, why we do things like pack mapping. Yeah. Create these short, facilitated, very purposeful engagement sessions where you're able to bring a particular group of people around the table to think about what are innovative ideas, where are current gaps, how can we work together? And then you have a starting place from which to build. And that sets that direction. And then the, the work after that can be done by other members of the project management team or the health authority or the primary care network. And the clinicians have put in some really important value at the beginning. I mean, I think the other thing here is that when we think about where we are, we need to promote different resilient structures in primary care. And we've talked a lot about teams. This is team up, right? Mm -hmm. Teams do provide a greater resilience when they're working well. Yeah. And we know teams are protective. Not only do they create that resilience in the system, but they also protect people who are part of them. Yeah, exactly. So promoting teams in general, and then looking at those ones that have focused need to support the gaps in primary care. And I think UPCCs were designed for, for certain gaps, and they're filling an access need right now community health centers. Historically, that's exactly what they're there for, for populations and primary care needs that haven't been addressed by the traditional system. And then lastly, 
Resilient structures have local adaptability. The overall system can't over-architect the local solutions because that will just bog things down and they, they won't adapt to the context that they need to. Yeah, communities really need to have that decision-making power that they need to be able to implement things on the ground that are going to be relevant to their own contexts. The right level of flexibility to be able to say, oh, we now need to do this more yeah. and this less because that's where the need is right now. And finding that balance can be tricky, but I think there's a level of trust that we have with our providers and teams to try to enable that going forward. You know, I'm always so keen on the idea of success stories. Finding out what's working, seeing how it can be adapted to other places, and really creating a learning healthcare system around all of these changes is going to be really important as we move forward. Otherwise, you run the risk of kind of rebuilding the same wheel over and over and over again, rather than thinking about new innovations and ways to address these problems as they emerge. So. So really building off those success stories is just so valuable. Yeah. And Sarah, I, there's an expression people say, fail fast, right? right? Like try something if it doesn't work, but find that out quickly and fail. And then somebody said, well, it's actually not that. What's important is learning fast. Mm. So trying stuff, you might be successful, you might not. And I think so success stories are great. I would like to have learning stories. Tell me what worked what, and why it didn't work. Then I can adapt that to my context. The, the underlying, the why of the success or not is what's replicatable and applicable to my context. Not necessarily the specific solution of 0.5 of a nurse who works out of a van. That might not be irrelevant for anyone else. It's very relevant for us. But the, the whole approaching the need and how we did that, that's what's relevant. So I think learning stories is also really important. Now I'm going to have to reframe how I think about and talk about everything. <laughs> Moving from success stories <laughs> to learning stories. Okay, I got this. Success stories sound way better. Yeah, I no, know. No, but, but learning stories, there, I think there is real value there. And also that idea of working in a system where things are very stretched, creating a mm -hmm. space where it's okay to fail, right? Right. Then to try things and then to change what you're doing and to be re responsive and to create responsive, again, that learning healthcare system idea. Yeah. That needs to be in place at the system level. Mm -hmm. that environment where it's okay. Yeah, and that learning healthcare system, we've been implicit with this, but being explicit, it has to be multi-level, right? It's not just a policy and it's not just what I do at clinic, but it's all the levels in between. It's connecting and hearing at, at the, the different levels. So hearing the, the local context so you understand that it's not just a widget that we need to replace and have more or less widgets. It's also understanding the context of how the North is different than Fraser, a dense population versus a, a, a very dispersed population. Those things, conceptually, we know. And when you hear it, when you get closer to it, you're like, okay, now I can better understand. And I can learn from that. And then the system at multi-levels can learn from that. So I think that that's really important. Having those local voices yeah. in the conversation, I think, is going to be really, really important as we move forward. And if there are policy folks thinking about that and think that's a great idea, also in the context of not too many meetings and not taking away too much time, but being really intentional about that. Opportunities like through our webinar series, having people from community talking and then sharing that across to the, the provincial team so they get more of that context. I think that's really a, a great way to, to leverage the, the work without overloading people. So there's a lot we've tried to pack in here. So all we really need to do is move into a whole new model of care, scrap the fee-for-service kind of design of the whole healthcare system and then move forward, right? 
Well, <laughs> it, it, maybe that's a little black and white, but I, I think that one size doesn't fit all for sure. Alternate funding is a an important component. I obviously am a, a large proponent of that, having been in alternate payment services for more than 20 years. <laughs> and, you know, it works in some areas, and I think there are certain things that fee-for-service can be helpful for, but we de definitely need other models. It's that context factor. But yes, potentially some big change, and we have to look at that sh short-term, long-term balance, right? I feel like we need a whole other season just to talk about those ideas. Yeah, I mean, this just scratches the surface of these, these ideas for broader change. And maybe that's where we're headed next. Maybe. And also, it depends on what we hear from our audience, right? Um, yeah. We have ideas, but we really want to hear from all of you who are listening. Yeah, I think, well, you know, we really wanted these ideas in these episodes to be helpful for you in the audience. And going forward into season three, we really want some feedback, both for the podcast and for the webinar, to understand what you need next and how we can make this even more valuable. Please send us messages through our website, teamuppod.com, or through the teambasedcarebc.ca website to give us ideas on where to focus. And I think that'll make a huge difference as we start planning season three. And I know that we just talked about how the system is in crisis and how everyone is stretched. So asking for feedback might seem like one more thing, uh, yeah. but we really uh, do hope to hear from you and we really do act on feedback that we receive. We really do need systems change. And taking this kind of system resilience perspective is so important because the changes that are happening on the ground uh, in places where they are successful right now, they're not going to be sustainable if the system isn't in place to support them, right? And it and it really, it isn't individual providers that need to be bearing the brunt of solving all these problems and delivering care in new ways. It's the system that needs to change to support what needs to happen on the ground. It's only gotten more urgent, Sarah, recently. It's true. And I mean, we're hearing a ton more in the media now about this right now, which I think brings it up to kind of the forefront of everybody's minds. But, you know, times of chaos are also, I think, really great times of opportunity to change. And over the last couple of years, we've really seen so many examples of, of innovation in, in primary care. People are doing really yeah. amazing things. And Morgan, I think for you and I to stay resilient, I know we're doing a lot of background work in what this kind of system resilience means, but we're also going to take a little break from the podcast as we wrap up this season and start prepping for season three. Yeah, I think, you know, for us to sort of walk the talk if you will a little break is a good idea and uh, we'll definitely be back this is too much fun for us that's the best part so much fun so uh we'll see you soon it's like the funnest it's the funnest thing